Geekscapist. Geekscape episode 400 is almost upon us, so this is the last of our um, mini Geekscape panel podcasts from Stanley's Kamikaze Expo 2015. This one's super special because I didn't, just like Grant Morrison, I did not know that I was doing this when I walked up uh, to the convention that morning, but I got a call from Keith Trallens that, uh, that there was some rearranging in the schedule, and uh, he was like, hey, can you, can you talk to Keir DeLay and Gary Lockwood from 2001 A Space Odyssey on stage uh, this morning? And uh, obviously I said yes, because 2001 A Space Odyssey is a pretty amazing movie. I recently just rewatched it, and in 2016, I'm still completely floored by what they pulled off in 1968. And really, how could I say no to talking for 30 minutes with two people who'd collaborated with Stanley Kubrick. Enjoy. It's kind of a, a pleasure to have you guys here. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of nervous, Kier. Oh, don't be nervous. <laughs> yeah, Hal Should isn't we here to make things Should difficult. Should we insult yeah. you? Should we insult you now to relax you? You guys can insult me all you want. Where are you from? <laughs> I'm from Texas, so it's, oh. it's, it's, a, it's wide open. That, that is absolutely too a Californian or negative thing. <laughs> How many people here have seen the film? 2001 about Oh, great. Listen, I have a couple of stories. I'll just tell one first, and then Gary can go on and take off, and then I'll come back and tell. But you might be interested in hearing something about the voice of Hal. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, while we were filming, we began filming, thought he was going to use a well-known actor at the time by the name of Martin Balsam, Marty Balsam, who was in Psycho and so many other great films. And he said, no, it's too New York. So... He hired a British, well-known British actor at the time, Nigel Davenport. And so he was on the set to do the off-camera lines with us, playing the part of Hal. And, he, and then Stanley said, no, it's too British. I'll worry about it in post-production when I'm editing the film. Meanwhile, he turns to his assistant director, Derek Cracknell, and he said, Derek, you do the voice of Hal for the actors. So for the, for the rest of the film, which was most of the filming ahead, this is what the voice of Hal for us as we acted sounded like. Dive, dive. Oh, better take a stress pill, but he's all like, oh no, I can't do that, sorry, Dave. You know, it was like working with Michael Caine. <laughs> that took acting. And then uh, later on, of course, he found this brilliant Canadian actor by the name of Douglas Raines, who was the Lawrence Olivier of Canada. He did all the great Shakespearean roles in Canada at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival, the most, one of the most well-known Shakespeare festivals in the world, and he did the, the voice of Hal. You want to say something? <laughs> you want to say something? I don't know what to say. I, I think uh, what I, I want to know guy is, once. what was it like, uh, how did you guys get involved in the film, and what was it like meeting Stanley Kubrick for the first time? Shall I tell you what happened? I have a fast story. Uh, my agent called me up and he said, Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick have contacted our agency and they are offering you the part of Frank Poole in a movie called 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I had been a Kubrick fan since I was 15 years old. The first time I ever saw a Kubrick movie, I walked out and it was the first time I ever looked to see who made the movie. He grew up in New York City. They used to go watch movies all the time, but I was out in the country. I was a bumpkin. Anyway, I said to my agent, I said, Stanley Kubrick? And he said, yeah. And I said, how much is it going to cost me to do the movie? 
I was doing a film in London with Laurence Olivier and Carol Lindley called Bunny Lake is Missing. And one day I had, uh, came home and my wife said, call your agent in L.A. So I called him. He says, are you sitting down? I said, no, why? He says, you've just been offered the lead in Stanley Kubrick's next film. And I, I also, like Gary, had been a Kubrick fan since I was in drama school when my favorite Stanley Kubrick film was showing down the street. I'd never heard of it. It was called Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas. It was a war movie, an anti-war movie uh, set in the, during the second, uh, First World War. And I sat in the, in the, waiting for Kirk Douglas, and uh, the movie began, and in less than a minute, my jaw dropped to my lap, and I said, who directed this, this brilliant movie? So I became an instant Kubrick fan, so when I was offered the Kubrick, the 2001, it was an amazing, I did have to sit down when I got the news. In, in Keir, did you guys have to audition? He found you. He had screened. No, no, we never auditioned. He had screened three of my three of my films. He screened the outtakes from Bunny Lake is Missing, the one I just mentioned, and he. All, I did a film called The Thin Red Line, not the one in color, but a, an earlier version with Jack Warden in black and white. And then the film that kind of put me on the map, in which I received a Golden Globe, was called David and Lisa, and he screened those three films. And uh, as a result, he decided he wanted me. I had no idea that I was being considered. I just heard that I'd been offered the film. It was that simple. That's amazing. Yeah. Like, somebody's looking out for you. I get uh, <laughs> By the way, are there anybody here who liked Star Trek? Oh. He did the pilot that sold the series. No, he did. What's the name of the... What was the name of it again? He was originally a Hura. You guys... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You guys... I know how to talk about the pilot. You, you two want to talk about it? I'm oh. teasing you. Oh, yeah, I did the pilot. And Roddenberry uh, sent me a... He, he, he told me that the NBC had said to get a hold of me. They made a pilot. It didn't sell called The Cage and Menagerie. And uh, so Roddenberry called me up, and I had just uh, signed to do the Kubrick movie. And uh, I said, Gene, I, I'm, I can't do your pilot. I'm going to go off and do this uh, movie with Stanley Kubrick. And he said, fine, fine. He said, but do me a favor. Please do this pilot. We'll, we'll make it earlier. We'll reschedule when we want to shoot it. And he said, I'm going to write something for you. And so I said, oh. He said, that's what I was told to do by the network. And I said, oh, okay. So he, he paid me handsomely and... Uh, I made about half what I made on 2001 on that pilot. Anyway, the, Kubrick was talented but very cheap with his pocketbook. Anyway, the end of the story is uh, I, I do this pilot, and it's the most dreadful job I've ever had with the thick lenses and the contacts and everything. And while I'm making it, I can't believe how terrible it is. And I'm in Sandy Liverson's office this is in agent. London. An agent. And he's got my per diem for uh, 2001. And while I'm there, I get into a dice game with an English actor. And we, this guy from New York is there. And, and we kind of get lucky and clean this Brit out. And the Brit, <laughs> the Brit storms out of the room with another Brit. And the guy from New York, you know, New Yorkers, are, they're quick with their mouths. And he goes, hey, hey, thanks for letting me play in the game. I said, well, you, you put up your money, too. And he said... No, no. He said, you're Gary Lockwood, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. He said, you know something, that pilot you did for Roddenberry? I said, 
and I was almost embarrassed. I'm not kidding. I said, oh, that, I did that whole thing blind, man. I, I, don't, I don't remember anything about it. I couldn't see anything. I did the whole thing like by road. And he said, it's going on the air. Well, by the time I moved back to America, it was already damn near gone. Oh. So I'll tell you, one back, quick, Star Trek one, was already huge. One quick more story, which I think you might amuse, yeah. what might be interesting to you. Um, there was a scene that I was supposed to communicate with mission control. And it was very difficult to learn because for me, it was technological gobbledygook. So it was like learning a foreign language. So I'd studied it for weeks, knowing it was coming up. Let's face it, and this film did not have a lot of dialogue, but this was a, a long speech, and I did it over and over and over again, and we shot it. Well, in the editing room, Stanley decided it wasn't necessary. There was another scene where Mission Control talks to us, and it was redundant, so he cut it. Nonetheless, because of the way I had to learn this, I can still do the whole speech to this day. That was filmed in 1966, and here's how it went. Mission Control, this is X-Ray Delta One. At 19020 on board Fault Prediction Center, and our 9000 computer showed Alpha Echo 35 unit as possible failure within 48 hours. Request check your in ship system simulator. Also confirm your approval our plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo 35 unit prior to failure. Mission Control, this is X ray Delta 1. Transmission concluded. That was 1966. <laughs> Thank you. I was showing off, but I just couldn't resist. One of the things that's talked about a lot on 2001 is how elaborate those sets and the special effects were. Uh, how much of that stuff uh, helped your performance? How much of that stuff did you guys have to kind of wrap your heads around as you were working with that? Well, you know, actors are used to kind of being in unusual places in films. You know, you're in a Western, you're in front of a phony Western town, and uh, you get used... You get, it, that, that part isn't, isn't what's difficult, but the sets for 2001 were amazing. And I'll just tell you, and Gary can... Gary has a story about this also, he'll tell you. But there's a, you may remember there's a scene in the centrifuge when Gary Lockwood, centrifuge is about like this, Gary Lockwood is upside down eating, right? In the hub of the wheel, I appear and I w climb down a ladder. This is all in one shot. You can see everything in one shot because I do want to remind you there, is, there was no computer-generated special effects, not one foot. It was everything you see in the film was done physically one way or the other. So anyway, I come down the hub, get my food to join him for an interview with the BBC. In that same shot, I walk seemingly upside down to him and slide into the seat. Then you cut to a close-up. How did we do that? This centrifuge was about as tall as the ceiling revolved at three miles an hour. I didn't have to walk upside down to him. They revolved Gary down to me and I just walked in place. But the camera being subjective thinks, look to, to the cameras if I'm walking upside down. SAG sent him extra money for being able to walk upside down. And I didn't get a damn thing. And I was the guy that was harnessed up there. So you had to pretend to eat. You had I, to act like you were eating upside down. Shall I tell him? Yeah, I, okay. Here's a, here's a story. I'm upside down. And Stanley Kubrick is the cool. First off, I don't know who has ever. A lot of you come up and ask us. Weird things you about explain, you should explain. You had a harness and to see yeah. no, no, underneath your costume. That's why you were able to hang upside I down. Want, I want to explain to them yeah. first about Kubrick. Uh, there's a lot of you think that Kubrick is a weird guy. I guess he had a hard time with Shelley Long and The Shining or something. But he was the coolest director I've ever known, and nobody that ever worked for him, not one actor, has ever not said that. 
I mean, that's, that's it. From Slim Pickens to Richard Anderson, all these friends of mine that I know that have worked with Stanley thought he was the greatest of all time, and so did I. And Stanley was very cool in his directorial uh, skills, and, and he was very fluid and very prepared. So I'm up there harnessed trying to be cool, right? And I'm upside down, and there's three plates of food in front of me, red, green, and yellow. It looked like a Simon game. And uh, this voice says, <clears throat> all right, Lockwood, on action, just start eating. So I've got this fork in my hand, and I stick it in the red gobbledygook, as Keir said, and I stick it like that, and I pull it to my mouth, and it goes like this. <laughs> Day one. <laughs> it took one week to eventually get that shot. So that's why 2001 is a, is a, is a wonderkin, because that's the most complicated difficult movie to shoot in the history of man. I just add, just wanted to talk about Stanley. As, as Gary said, he was an extraordinary man to, to work for. He was very quiet, never raised his voice, um, the most prepared director I have ever worked with. And therefore, when you're that prepared, you can kind of relax if you're a director and let the actors find their own their own ideas doesn't mean you'll use them, but give you the you have open doors to at least try something. Stanley let us always do try try something. He you just knew that you were in the presence of genius when you were in his presence. He was an amazing, extraordinary human being. Did you guys uh, see the LACMA exhibit that was about a year or two ago? Uh, at the LACMA, there was I mean Stan oh you mean the exhibit yeah yeah I and did. it was it, extensive. It was, it was all a, of Stanley's. It was extraordinary. By the way, I I. I got a um, call on my website. They contacted me, and I went to Monterey, Mexico, and they had the whole thing there. They have and that, I, that I flew down there, and I spoke, and a lot of uh, wealthy uh, Mexican people flew in from Mexico City, and uh, there was about 500 people, and uh, I, I spoke about it. But the LACMA thing is traveling around the world. Yeah, so if, if it ever comes back to L.A. or, if, or oh. nearby San Diego, San Francisco, it's worth traveling for. It's several rooms worth yeah. of his. Well, every room in this exhibit. How many saw that exhibit for Stanley? Oh, you did. Well, every room represented one of Stanley Kubrick's films. So there were many rooms. You know, there was one for The Shining, one for Barry Lyndon, one for 2001. It went on. It was an extraordinary. He was, he was an extraordinary man. We might have quite in, in Mexico, the whole thing was in a very small room. <laughs> <laughs> they, they only they only saw one movie over there. <laughs> it, they were cut down into shorts. Sorry, guys. I'll bet I'll bet you people might have questions. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know how long this shoot was for you guys. Like how many days? If that one shot took a week, oh, how how long was your oh, production? the whole shooting schedule yeah. for us? Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, few months. I don't remember exactly. Two or three months. Oh no, no, we were there longer. Were we? Yeah. I don't. Oh remember. yeah. But I mean, January, it opened the, January yeah. February, March, probably into April. But it opened the door for. Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, all, their, all, all these space epics you guys see, The Martian, uh, it's all Stanley Kubrick. Just done. I mean, Blade Runner and all those, uh, The Alien, those are all hey, just Stanley Kubrick redone. I, I have a little story for you about Blade Runner. Okay? Sure. Yeah. Uh, one day years ago in the 60s when we were all getting stoned all the time, and we were, thank you. I quit in my 40s, but I remember the day. 
I was with, I had a very close friend who's now dead, but he was the handsomest guy in the movie business. His name was Brian Kelly, and he uh, he died on a, of a motorcycle accident. But the end of the story is, he was one of my best friends, and we were all in Big Sur in the top of a mountain, and we were smoking pot, and we had these pretty girls in our fast cars, and we were on the top of a mountain in Big Sur. Pretty cool. We had a fire going, and one of the guys had bought Time magazine. And on the top of Time magazine, it was a split cover. And the bottom half was Dustin Hoffman in the park with a bunch of flowers shot with a, like, 120 lens. And up on top was John Wayne and the Wild Goose with a cowboy hat and a red thing leaning against with all his huge, powerful look. And Hampton Fancher and I and Brian Kelly looked over and Brian said, Hey, Lockwood, man. Which of these two guys would you rather be? And I said, well, I enjoyed The Graduate. It was a cute little movie, but, I mean, I, I used to be a cowboy stuntman, so, you know, I worked... My first job was with John Wayne's company, Batjack. I doubled his son, Patrick. And uh, I said, so I'd rather be the guy up on top. And I said, also, John had the best pot. <laughs> and... I know people find it really weird that John Wayne smoked pot, but he really did. Anyway, the, the end of the story is Brian said, you know what would be really cool if one day we all like to read. Here's a reader. He grew up. His family had a bookshop in the village. We all used to like to read sci-fi. And Brian Kelly and Hampton loved sci-fi. And they said, wouldn't it be great if we could all do a sci-fi movie before we die? And I said, every time they do one, they got bugs and aliens. And it's, I don't like that. that. They never look good in movies. So the end of the story is, I ended up making 2001, and they produced and wrote Blade Runner. Isn't that cool? That's cool. I thought you might be interested to know that uh, uh, MGM, which released the film at the time, MGM realized about... Several months into the, after it had been first released, after the premieres, realized that people were fu uh, smoking funny cigarettes. And so they changed the poster for the advertising. The new poster said, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Ultimate Trip. <laughs> All right, so I, I imagine you guys have some questions. There's a, a microphone back there. Uh, one of our amazing staff members has a microphone. There you go. When filming the scenes, uh, who did the voice of Hal that you were responding to? In you you must have come. I told that whole story. I missed that. Okay, well, it was, I'll just, the, the quick answer is the voice of Hal was a Canadian actor who's considered the Lawrence, the Lawrence Olivier of Canada and did all the, the leading roles in Shakespeare at the uh, Stratford uh, Shakespeare Festival in Ontario, Canada. Yeah. And he's very annoyed that he's done all these great parts. You and have a question. We There's another hear microphone you. right there, guys. Another microphone. The microphone's right there. I was talking. Hi, I'm just interested to know what other Kubrick film were you like? Did you wish you were in, but you wish you had starred in? Well, I, I I don't know if you heard. My favorite Kubrick film of all time was The uh, Paths of Glory, uh, about the First World War. And uh, what would I have liked to have done? I would like to have been one of the one of the characters, one of the uh, leading characters. I would like to have done the part, I probably would have been right for the part that Anderson, what was his first name, that wonderful actor? 
Oh, Richard? Richard Anderson, who, for those of you who may have seen the part, he played the part of the prosecuting attorney in the court-martial that uh, condemned the three men that were executed. What about you, Gary? Uh, out of all the Kubrick What's movies, that? Which, out of all what? the Kubrick movies, which one would you like to be involved in? What are my favorite Kubrick movies? No, what, what, if, what other film would you like to have played a part in? If, if you could pick any Kubrick movie that you and play a part in, which one would you have also liked to play a part in? Well, I would imagine I'd probably have enjoyed because uh, I had some friends in it, but I would like to have been in Doctor Strangelove. Oh yeah, Doctor Strangelove would have been amazing. Yeah. Can I tell you something? I was in the rodeo as a kid. And I used to be a trick writer with Monty Montana. And there was a, a, a character in Dr. Strangelove named Slim Pickens. And he's the cowboy that flew the bomber in, into Russia. And if you remember, he, he says, All right, boss, we're going to go toe-to-toe with the Ruskies, nuclear warfare. And he puts on a cowboy hat. Well, anyway, when I got back to America eventually and uh, I was going skiing up in Mammoth. Slim Pickens was a rodeo cowboy when I was a kid and I would come out with a red shirt and do all these tricks and then Slim was always hired to be when the guys rode the Brahma Bulls that's when everybody in the rodeo comes to watch a Brahma Bull because that's the most beautiful event in the, in the whole show and Slim was a guy out there that after you got thrown off the Brahma, he'd come up there and save you, you know? He'd come up. Well, I'm on the way to Mammoth Mountain, and I pull into this little bar to get a beer before I go up the hill off 395, and I see uh, Slim sitting with his wife having a steak, of course, and uh, I walk up and I say, Slim, he says, oh, God darn, Gary, how you been? I haven't seen you in a hell of a long time. And I said, I'm great, how are you? And he said, oh, I'm just fine. This is my wife, Larry and Sharon, or whatever the hell it was. And I said, hey, I said, hey, listen, I just came back from London. I, I worked with Stanley. And he goes, oh, my God, I bet you loved him. And I said, oh, I really did. He said, you and Stanley must have had a hell of a time. And I said, well, we gambled and told a lot of stories, and I... I used to beat him in snooker every Friday night at his castle. <laughs> but anyway, the Slim Pickens, uh, that's one of the greatest movies I think Stanley ever made. Yep. Um, all right. You guys, how are we doing on time? I'm just looking over. Okay. All right. I, I think that's what we have. Uh, he wants to sneak it in real quick. Sneak it in real quick. I'm sorry. I'll get fired, but it's okay. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Um, out of all the scenes in uh, 2001, um, which one is your favorite? I think when, uh, when my character dismantles Hal. Oh. Uh, I don't know how, how many of you remember a movie. It was also a play called Of, of Mice and Men. Of course. Do you remember the retarded character who kills the girl inadvertently? And to save him from being hanged, his best friend shoots him, right? Yeah. That, in a way, emotionally, was a little like that scene for me. Taking Hal apart was like... Where are we going to see the chickens? Are we going to see the, the chickens in the farm the and all that? Anyway, yeah. We, I, I'd like to just time? say one thing, about, one thing about 2001 before I leave here. Um, I, that is my favorite scene in the movie, when he disconnects Hal. But there's one thing I want, if you ever see it again, and that is after Moonraker, the head uh, man-ape, has been exposed to the uh, monolith, the next day he's out you know, furring around looking 
uh, for bugs or something in the bones, and he pitches a bone to his left like this, and it hits another bone and creates what we call a mechanical advantage. This hits that and causes that. And there's this incredible moment, think about it, where, I mean, it's all, it's all, a, it's all a fictional story, but Moonraker stops and goes, Remember? Yeah, he's just, uh, he kind of shakes his head. And if you remember, he eventually, because they triumph over the other, the other tribe, he throws that bone. This is my favorite cinematic moment in all of cinema. It's brilliant. He throws the bone, and in slow motion, it morphs into a space vehicle. And I've always told this story, but fairly recently, I discovered that that wasn't just a space vehicle. That was a nuclear weapon in orbit around the Earth. So think about that cinematic moment where the first weapon, a bone, morphs into the most recent weapon. It was a brilliant, brilliant cinematic moment. Which might have been the last weapon. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, guys, Gary, thank you guys so much for being here. Pleasure. (laughs) That's amazing. By the way, I am selling Star Trek photos, so if anybody wants one, come by our table.